0: Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor at places like the Dispatch, Arc Digital, and elsewhere where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'll be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I look forward to reading them. In this week's show... I'm going to talk through the recent rise in political violence we've seen in the country, expanding sort of on the events from this week's newsletter, and also talking about a new death that occurred in Portland, Oregon. After that, I'm going to cover the latest numbers on the coronavirus, and then wrap up with this week's light item segment, which is one of the highlights from the Republican Convention. So that's the agenda for this week's show, and we'll jump right in. So over the weekend, I was reading through the September issue of Commentary Magazine, and the cover story was written by one of Commentary's editors. His name is Abe Greenwald, and I'll link to it in the show notes because it's great, and I highly recommend everyone reading the entire thing. And while I would quibble with him over some of the minor points in his pieces, on his main point in this one, he's 100% correct. Because he states it up front in the first paragraph, what's wrong with this entire descent we've seen of the country into madness. A commentary, they call it the Great Unraveling. And I've just called it just sort of this descent into violence or madness that we've seen, especially, over, especially since the end of the, the shutdowns and the beginning of these protests. So this is the introductory paragraph that he wrote for that piece that I think is perfect and encapsulates everything that we're witnessing. He says, The battle for the survival of the United States of America is upon us. It has not come in the form of traditional civil war. There are no uniformed armies, competing flags, or alternate constitutions. The great showdown is not being fought within the physical limits of a battlefield. It is instead happening all around us and directly to us. It defines our culture, sustains our media, and gives new shape to our public and private institutions. In this fight, there is no distinction between what, between what once was once known as the Cultural War and politics rightly understood the confrontation stretches through time and space reframing our distant past even as it transforms the horizon erupting from coast to coast and constraining our lives in subtle and obvious ways and it's happening too fast for us to take its full measure and i think that's a perfect encapsulation of where we are, because you have, on the one hand, the project of these new woke elites who are trying to redefine the American past, which is what he's getting to there, and that's either through the 1619 Project or other similar related things, where everything in the past is bad, so it frees us to redefine the future however we want it to be. They want to free themselves from the constraints of tradition, truth, or any kind of absolute in order to define whatever they deem as wanting as right. Right. And everything that is happening to us, all the clashes, all the escalating violence, and just everything that is happening right now, it's happening at a very rapid pace, especially when you compare it to previous eras. I've got a column coming out for the Conservative Institute, and in it, I talk and compare where we are now to the late 60s. Now, everyone talks about the peaceful protests of the 60s and all the changes that came from that, good and bad, and just everything that blossomed forth from the 60s and the boomer era. No one remembers and no one talks about the very violent fallout that came at the end of the 60s. 1968 brought a wave of assassinations with the deaths of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy. And most historians will tell you that we don't really think of the 60s, the quote-unquote 60s, as ending in 1969 or 1970. They really chart the the end of the 60s as 1973. And that's because the political fallout of the 60s continued on into the 70s. And you're talking everything from the Vietnam War all the way through the Cultural Wars and the clashes that were happening on the streets. And so you really have to go forward a little bit more and go past all these peaceful things that people are talking about and look at what really happened. Because from 1968 and nine, to 1973, the disillusioned leftists formed extremist organizations, and some of them even became full-blown what we would now call domestic terrorist organizations. And this is where you get groups like the Weather Underground, the New World Liberation Front, and many others like them. These groups were terrorist, domestic terrorist organizations before we even used that kind of terminology. You would hear, you know, just extremists, especially if you got on, you know, if they were talking about right-wing extremists and things like that, you might get close to it with some of that, where they would talk about militia groups but you really wouldn't hear it referred to when it came to these leftist groups. In a single 18-month period from 1971 to 1972, the FBI counted an amazing 2,500 bombings. That's right, bombings on American soil, which averaged out to almost five a day. Now, because these were typically detonated at night, late at night, they were Few of them caused serious injuries, so it just sort of led to a kind of grudging acceptance, according to journalists at the time. The deadliest underground attack of the decade killed four people in January of nineteen seventy five, and that was the bombing of a Wall Street restaurant. News organizations, like I said, they they barely covered these events. They made the media splash equivalent of a traffic stop. Or a typical homicide that you would see on the news, there was not this big grave concern of domestic terrorist groups. I mean, we've you look at our our news now compared to then. I mean, we had the Charlottesville attack, and you have what's happening in these cities that are getting far more attention than what was happening in the '70s with these underground terrorist organizations. And so you had, you know, eventually Richard Nixon and the FBI had to crack down on all of this. And that's where you, you had this, you had the escalating crime wave. And so, you know, this is why Nixon ran his law and order platform, because you had all of this happening. And that led to landslide victories, because people eventually looked around and said, we do not want this. The government has to do something. So when we talk about our... You know, our when we talk about that time period, there's a lot of things that are happening. Because it takes more than a full decade before you get that full transformation. It takes, you know, more than more than 10 years before you start seeing people go from hopeful idealist to the full blown disillusioned terrorist that happen at the end. So that took time to take place. Now, contrast to where that's where we are now in 2020, and this change is happening in weeks or months. This is not a years-long phenomenon. Now, you, if you wanted to, you could maybe go back and trace this from the Tea Party and the Occupy movements that were in the wake of the economic fallout. But I think it, it's a little tenuous to try to connect that to where we are now because it is so much different. And you could even try to maybe you know, connect some of these protests to what happened with Trayvon Martin. And while some of that is related, what we're seeing is far advanced from there. The transformation of what we're witnessing now is happening at a much greater pace than at any other time in American history. And that's what he really gets at in, the, in that introduction that we're seeing people become fully disillusioned with their political beliefs and turn to violence at a breathtaking pace. And this is where I, I really agree with Abe, because everything is happening too fast for us to take this in With its full meaning, it's just happening too fast for all our senses to keep up because you have the virus, you have these protests, you have all the various little things happening underneath it. you know, got the murder hornets and things like that. You've got people going back to school. You've just got people trying to survive this economic fallout. So there are a lot of things happening at once. And because of that, we're probably missing the changes that are happening underneath everything else. So I'm, I'm starting here. When I'm talking through this, this segment, I'm ta- I'm starting out a little bit more abstract this week because the political events surrounding these these riots in places like Portland, Oregon, Kenosha, Wisconsin, and you know you have other these places where you see some of the more dramatic videos coming out, like Washington D.C. after people left uh, Trump's speech and they were being they were being harassed as they were leaving that. People like Rand Paul and, and just normal everyday people, they're being harassed by these protesters. And it's not just that they are yelling or exercising First Amendment rights against elected officials and others. They're advocating violence. These are people who are advocating violence against public officials and against others like them. I remember back when the Tea Party were at their absolute height and people were marching in D.C. and elsewhere, there were a lot of people in the media who looked at this and said, oh, this is just all violent rhetoric, we need to tone this down, otherwise things are going to get dangerous. And the Tea Party groups were the types of people who were marching in these places and then picking up their trash afterwards and leaving these places better than they were before. They exercised their First Amendment rights and then they left and dispersed. That's a pretty heavy contrast to what we're seeing here. What we're seeing here is very much ratcheted up. It's no longer just about issue about the issues of rioting, looting and mass damage to public and private property. That was, you know, 2 weeks ago. That was the main deal with all this where we were talking about the possibility of even more violence. We're well beyond that now. People are dying now. People are getting shot. The radicalization that that we witnessed in the late 60s and early 70s is happening to us now, and it's all taking place at just a much higher rate of speed. So in the newsletter, I covered the three big events that we've had recently. You had the shooting of Jacob Blake, followed by the shootings involved with Kyle Rittenhouse, And he may or may not have a self-defense claim. I'm not entirely sure there. I link to some of the more relevant pieces of information that you can go and check out on that. But regardless, that event happened where you have a guy on the right who is shooting some of these people in in a protest. And then in Minnesota we had a man who committed suicide and police were forced to release a video of that event because they were being falsely accused of killing a black man and people were using that as an excuse or precursor to loot and destroy that city. So now we can add a fourth. In Portland, at some point, either late Saturday night or early Sunday morning, a man who was part of this Patriot Prayer Group A group I know, I'll just admit, I know nothing about. I didn't do any research on them because they're still trying to confirm a lot of this. And so I'm not going to go in depth on any of that. But this is what he was allegedly. And all you really know is this was likely part of the pro-Trump demonstration that was taking place where people who were Trump supporters were driving into Portland and demonstrating themselves. In any event, he was shot in the chest in downtown Portland and died on the scene. Now, videos are going around on social media, which appear, and I emphasize here, it's late Sunday and there's still stuff coming out about this. And so, as of this time, I emphasize that you you have to just say it appears that this guy was targeted as a Trump supporter and shot because of that. It sounds in the video, one of the main videos, like they sound, the the people who were involved said they had found a Trump supporter and just went up to him and shot him. Now, I have no way to confirm this at this time because all we have is a video that is some distance away, and there's no use playing it on the podcast because police are still trying to confirm whether or not that's what happens or not. It's a little bit like the the Kyle Rittenhouse. When it first happened, we needed to know which one of those videos were legit and which ones were not, and they're still working through that. But the main video that everyone has pointed to is this one, and that includes some journalists who were there. They're pointing at this one, too. So... We don't know from that short video whether or not there's any antagonation, like what we saw with Rittenhouse case, or just anything else that would add color to what happened here that would tell us what happened. But regardless, what we do know is this, that in the middle of another chaotic riot in Portland, another person has died. And now, both sides of the political spectrum have tasted blood, in a way. Because you have too many, just... Me looking around here, by my estimation, there's too many people cheering this Kyle Rittenhouse kid, cheering him on, and cheering on the idea that he stood up for himself and shot what they would call clearly bad people. I've seen the memes, I've seen the Facebook comments, I've seen the discussions of this, and this is disturbing because this is not something that should not be cheered or considered a good thing. I think the best summary I saw, somebody posted it said, just everyone involved in that specific case is a moron. Top to bottom. That kid shouldn't have been there. The other protesters shouldn't have been antagonizing him. Nothing happened that was right. And so there's no reason to sit here and cheer on what he did. At all. And now on the other side, on the left, it appears the same thing is happening. Just like these people on the right, they're jumping on to the same conclusions. They're saying that this death of a man in Portland was good. And just to sort of show you one of the things that is happening here, I'm going to play a couple of clips here. Uh, one of them is from Portland. It's a woman on a bullhorn. She's involved in part of the demonstrations that took place, and she was shouting into it and talking about why this shooting was a good thing. Now I'm gonna give you, there's a quick language warning I have to give here on this clip and the following clip I'm going to play. Uh, I can't edit out the profanity that that they're using and they both use quite a bit, but it's important to hear this because this is where we are. This is what the two sides are saying about each other. So here's the first clip.
1: Our community can hold its own without the police. We can
2: take out the trash on our own. I am not sad that a fucking fascist died tonight. Yeah.
0: So that's the scene in Portland. And of course, you have to say with all these things, these individuals don't represent an entire movement. That's fine, but these people are also part of these movements, just as some of these same idiots on the right, they don't, you know, if they're they're cheering on what this kid is doing, they don't speak for everyone on the right, but they are also part of the people who are responding to this, and it is wrong that they're doing that. And so the same night this is happening in Portland, similar speeches are happening in Washington, D.C. Now, you have to remember this is happening all in the wake of the Republican National Convention. So this is a clip of a speech of a man on a bull a man on a bullhorn and he was on the same street in DC where they have the big Black Lives Matter logo painted on the street. Again, another language warning on this one, but it also reiterates where the rhetoric is heading in this situation.
1: I'm at the point where I'm ready to put these police in a fucking grave. I'm at the point where I wanna burn the fucking White House down. I wanna take it to the senators. I wanna take it to the Congress. I wanna take the fight to them. And at the end of the day, if they ain't gonna hear us, we burn them the fuck down. I'm one that talk real shit. I talk it in New York and I talk it in DC. The same way I fuck police up in New York, I fuck cops up here in DC. The same way I bust police in the head in New York, I bust police in the head in DC. Now, it's a lot of people, and I'm gonna be honest, it's a lot of people that's on this front line. And one of the things that I always say, don't get on this fucking front line if you ain't gonna fucking fight. Don't get on this front line if you ain't gonna take no hit. Don't get on this front line. When the police fucking push up, you push back. If you're going to be on this front line and them racist ass, nasty ass, punk ass fucking police is pushing up, you push the fuck up.
0: So this is where we are right now. This is where the two sides are headed. These are obviously some of the most extreme examples. But this is also what people are speaking to bullhorns for everyone to hear. This is not hidden speech. This is not quiet speech. This is what people are saying out in the open. And again, I'll reiterate, I've seen some basically similar rhetoric on the right people, especially cheering on this kid, Kyle Rittenhouse. So they say some of the same thing, what he did is similar to what some of these same people are saying about the police. They're saying about what he's doing to protesters, that it's all good. (laughs) So we're a country that's on the edge of a knife right now. The extremists on both sides, they've, as I said earlier, they've tasted blood now. And like any groups that have existed like this in the past, they now want more. Now, we've seen lone wolf versions of this in the past. So you have to think back to the congressional baseball field shooting that nearly killed several Republicans. One of them was Rand Paul. He was right there on the scene. And so when people are talking about him being yelled at, and he was also injured by his neighbor, too, I think it was a couple of broken ribs at least. So for him, a lot of this is a lot hitting a lot more close to home because he's been shot at now. He's been attacked by people around him. And now people are sounding him and his wife on the streets and attacking when a harassing. So that Republican the Republicans were got shot at that that was should have been a Rubicon moment where everyone stepped back and said, okay, we need to stop all this. All of this is bad. But in reality, what happened is that that event's been mostly memory-holed by the press, especially the national media. They just don't think about that happening anymore. It's just Trump, Trump, Trump. Everything is always him. There's nothing bad that happens on the left. And so when these protests first started, and you can go back and you can look at the polls and in real clear politics, there was, a, for the most part, Trump and Biden had tracked each other within a specific range in the polls, but there was a diversion where Biden went up and Trump went down at the start of June. So when the protest started, that's when Trump really took a hit, and that's when Biden really went up further than he had been before. Well now there's been a change. People's attitudes are changing on this and Trump has recovered from his lows whereas Biden has flattened out. So that's why you're seeing this freak out in the media that they're and in in the Democratic Party. They think that there's a chance here that this is a blowback on them because they've done nothing about this issue. And so the speed of radicalization of what we're seeing here where we're moving from lone wolves to, to a full pack, it's it shifted very quickly and it's impacting how people view politics. Because this is no longer about racial justice, speech, parties, or anything. Where we are right now, it, it's beyond all of that. Even though people are reacting in a political nature, what, what is actually happening here, the political forces at play, this is just no longer about political parties right now, the real threat is this. We're talking about whether or not we fully devolve into full scale political violence of one side against the other. And that is something that is fully within the government's capacity to end with force. This is why you give government force to end things like this, because ending it, will take force. And that's the real key here when you're looking at the political reaction here. People are talking about taking a strong statement or making a strong speech. But the reality here is is that you have to send in force and end this thing and nip it in the bud. Because it is beginning to blossom, and so you have to stop it now. Now, Donald Trump is saying that he's going to travel to Kenosha, Wisconsin, as of this recording. And Joe Biden said at the beginning of the day he was going to travel there as well, but he backed out after Trump's announcement. According to reports, Biden's staff leaked to Politico they were doing this because they wanted Trump to take center stage and let the event backfire on him. Biden, instead, is going to be giving a speech in Pennsylvania. So... As this Trump-Biden back-and-forth developed on Sunday, I became increasingly annoyed with elite journalists and pundits because they all claimed uniformly that Joe Biden's statement that he put out after he backed out of his travel schedule, they all said that his statement was a strong one and that he put the onus on Trump and showed that this was actually Trump's fault. They said this uniformly, and it was very annoying. Part of Biden's statement said, and I quote, shooting in the streets of a great American city is unacceptable. I condemn this violence unequivocally. I condemn violence of every kind, by anyone, whether on the left or the right. And I challenge Donald Trump to do the same. End quote. That is ridiculous. That is the... All lives matter of statements on what is happening in these cities. And the challenge part of that is just a joke. Because the issue of violence in the streets and people dying, people being harmed by this, this was a central theme of the Republican convention. I think this got hit on on all four days of the convention. I watched it. I watched the speeches. It wasn't a topic at the Democratic Convention. So when you're talking about challenging here, this is a projection. This is an issue that neither Biden nor Democrats have wanted to acknowledge for months now. On either side, they didn't really care. They thought this benefited them, and they didn't care. Now that they see that Trump is rising in the polls, they're panicking. So now it's all about, oh, well, this is all Donald Trump's fault, and it's, it's all on him. We didn't do have anything to do with this they're the ones who have ignored this. These are their people. These are their people who were in charge of these cities. Because that's the thing about this. When you're talking about Trump's, I mean, Biden's statements versus Trump's actions, that's the difference. Trump has actions here, things he has either done or attempted to do. He's offered consistently to send in federal, you know, either federal agents, federal troops, and any federal resources just to reinforce police forces, all these sorts of things to end this violence he's offered to the cities and these governors. And the Democratic mayors and governors have rejected them every last single time. So we have to sit here and say, well, Biden gave a strong statement. All right. Well, Trump said basically the same thing in strong statements, just in a Trump version. And he's also offered federal resources to stop that. And he's also, you know, offered that to red states, too. And if you'll notice that most of these red states seem to have this under control, even the more diverse red states. So this notion that a strong statement is all that's going to work here is a joke. And here's the thing about these Democratic mayors and governors and their decision to reject federal resources. There's nothing principled here. They're not standing on any principles at all. This is pure politics, because if this was President Clinton or President Biden offering these exact same federal resources, these same Democrats would jump on them, and they would see it as the country unifying together to stop right-wing violence. They would only blame it on one side, but they would absolutely accept the offer. This has nothing to do with the protesters on their part. They're all looking out for their own political backside. Biden and these Democrats offer empty statements condemning the acts, but don't say they'll lift a finger to stop them. That's the difference here. And so when Biden tries to try out the this is Trump's America quote that he's trying to get the media to repeat nonstop, it misses the mark by a mile because these protesters and the agitation they're creating is a product of the left. Democrats and the media have ignored it or encouraged it for months. Now, you even have some Democratic members of Congress who've called this a flat out myth when asked about it. I think Jerry Nadler was one of them. But now they believe this hurts their electoral chances, so they're having a freak out and they're blaming it all on Donald Trump, who has tried it out things to do, but they're rejecting that. So they're rejecting the help that would help end this, and they're only giving out strong statements. That should tell you where the blame lies here. If you offer empty platitudes, and nothing to prevent the violence from occurring, then, it, doesn't, then it, just, it does make sense to say, as Trump does, this is what Biden would do to America. He's a weak president and capable of standing up to the mob. He'll just fall in down in front of the mob. Trump, by contrast, tweeted out a very clear statement. It's short, it's sweet, and it gets to the point of this. He said, the only way you'll stop the violence in the high-crime Democrat-run cities is through strength, exclamation point. And that's the truth. That is what this will take. You have to show strength to stop the mobs because there are now mobs on both sides. You now have mobs forming on the right who are reacting to what has happened on the left. And when the, you know, these left-wing protests, when they first started out, they obviously had, you know, good things to protest about. I think the George Floyd's killing was wrong in every, you know, every way you could describe it. And we do need changes to policing reform. But it's no longer about that. These are not the same protests. These are now riots and these are people who are burning down these cities. So Democratic mayors and governors have created this mess by not reacting to it and not trying to challenge it. And we're beyond the moment now where speeches and strong statements help or do anything. It is the most DC-centric bubble thing to believe that a strong statement fixes anything, because eventually you do have to show the protesters a line has been crossed and start enforcing the law. And we've crossed that a long time ago now, because now now people are being killed, and that's going along with the destruction of public and private property. None of which, I'll add, is protected by the First Amendment. So it is now far beyond time for the government to act. So when you see these interviews and you see these speeches by Joe Biden and Democrats, the problem now isn't about issuing a strong statement condemning what is happening. That's something that should have happened a long time ago. Now the question is, what are you going to do to help rebuild and then kick these protesters out on both sides. You cannot have these these Trump supporters going in and causing a ruckus, and you can't have the same thing happening with these people taking over city blocks. It just cannot happen. These groups cannot be allowed to take over and roam around like vigilante groups that cannot stand in a place that supposedly has a working government. So it's time for the government to act, and it's time for if these Democratic mayors and governors aren't going to do their job, they should resign. Because that's where we are now. This cannot be allowed to happen. Because if it's allowed to continue, this is where you get the spiraling out of control, where one group just reacts to the other group and you just get increasing, you know, just get this increasing aggression on both sides, where you see this growing disillusionment and radicalization, which leads to stronger and more intense forms of political violence. So we have to stop this now. Otherwise, it could get out of control. So I hope I'm wrong on that, but that is how these things work because you're beginning to see people say, well, we're just not going to put up with this anymore. We're either going to go defend it ourselves or we're going to go antagonize these people. So you've got to clean this up and stop it. Now, before wrapping up the segment, I'd wanted to issue one correction for the newsletter this week. One astute reader caught a mistake that I made. I referred to George Floyd's death as a shooting That is obviously not correct. It was not an officer-involved shooting. It was excessive force by keeping a knee on his neck for 9 to 10 minutes. So that error occurred because I was writing well past midnight after watching the last night of the Republican convention and Donald Trump's very long, very, very long 70-plus-minute convention speech. Plus, then I turned around and then watched the fireworks. And as we'll go through here in a second, some of the music that happened after that, which was excellent. But it was also very, very late. And one of the longest in history, I think. So I'll correct that mistake on the website, but I can't do that for the emails that have already gone out. So thank you for that correction. I'm glad to get those and get those facts correct. So I'm gonna take a break here, and then when we come back, we'll talk through the latest on the coronavirus. So I skipped the coronavirus update last week and we're we'll gonna come back to it this week because you know there's there's good there's a good wealth of news that's happened and it's worth doing because there's some interesting news that have happened this week. So as usual, we'll hit the top line numbers first and go from there. So there have been a little over 77 million tests run. Testing has rebounded after dropping there for a while to around 700 to 750,000 tests run a day. That variates up and down quite a bit right now. We had seen a significant dip uh, before coming Close to running up to one million a day. I thought for sure that you know by the first of August we'd be close to at least a million tests a day, and that hasn't happened. So that could change, though. We're going to come back to this testing thing because there's some interesting news on that front. But after that, we will cross the six million number of positive cases this week. We have around five point nine six million positive cases total, and that's confirmed. So that's five point you know basically 6 million people, have confirmed had this virus. And so that's what we're going to see happen this week. The big news, though, is on the hospitalization front. That has dropped precipitously. We currently have just under 36,000 people actively hospitalized, and that number is the lowest we've seen since July 1st. So it looks like hospitalizations peaked on July 24th, at nearly 60,000 active hospitalizations, and since then it's dropped almost in half. And hopefully, that continues to drop because that means we're going to have more and more free beds, and the strain on the healthcare system is going down. And also, the fewer people that hospitalize, the fewer deaths overall that we're likely to see because that means we have fewer and fewer. Bad cases out there, the worst of the cases, so the deaths have also slowed down. the seven day moving average has dropped to below a thousand people dying a day now that doesn 't mean that we don 't have the the occasional day here where people do are above that. It just means when you average it out on a week to week basis. We're below that 1,000 mark, which is good news because it is continuing to drop. So that means we've likely worked through at this rate the the maximum part of that hospitalization peak. So we're now it's going to begin moving down again. So we're on the downhill swing ground of this virus overall. Because the other good news, and this is really good news, is that the positivity rate on testing, that just continues to drop. After topping off at 8.5% on, you know, tests that were coming back as positive at the end of July, we're now back down to 5.8%. So we have dropped down when we're beginning to get into that range where the virus exists, but as long as we're just dealing with it and remaining social distance, this is not as big of a deal. So it's sort of like where we were around... The you know mid-May where everything was starting to drop. So our previous low on the positivity front, positive rate front was 4.5%. So we have a little more ways we can drop, and hopefully we get under the five percent mark because that would be great on a national level. The models that project how many people have gotten the virus currently say approximately 14.3 percent of the country has had the virus. And so that includes your asymptomatic cases. The upper band for these projections is 18.8% and the lower band is 10.6% of the population. So that, you know, the middle figure ends up being 14.3. So that means approximately somewhere between 35 and 62 million people have potentially contracted the virus overall. Now remember, we've only had like I said, six million of confirmed positive cases. So this is using, you know, the asymptomatic, asymptomatic rate that we think exists to sort of project forward how many people we think have had it. So hopefully this is actually correct. Hopefully this model is sort of hitting the nail on the head here and that it would be great if we were at the upper band there, because that would mean we would have close to one in five Americans has had this and that they're now working through and they have antibodies that would give us a very good chance of having herd immunity because even if you have the low end there that means you still have 35 million americans walking around who are now potentially immune to this so that means the median projection in the middle there the main line that you would draw to that is that 47 million people have contracted this one way or another so that brings us to the question that I've hit a few times on this podcast, and we've talked through the possibility. Are we getting helped in the spread of the virus by a combination of herd immunity plus social distancing measures? And increasingly, when you talk, look at data scientists and some epidemiologists, they all seem to think the answer to this is possibly yes. Because the only real explanation that you can come up for why a place like New York is doing better right now versus other places is that it was so bad there in the early spring, and we'll never really know because we didn't we didn't have enough tests when they got hit in their peak to know how widespread the virus was. They estimate that you know potentially as much to a, as up to a fourth of the population in New York has gotten the virus, and that's probably gone up since then. And so that means one in four has potentially gotten it. And that's probably higher in other places. So when you combine 25% of people who have had it and are now immune, or they've sadly died, if you combine that with people who are social distancing and you can get 50% of the population doing that, you've got a pretty good shot of sort of acting like a community that has herd immunity because it's going to be much harder for the virus to spread with that kind of that those just those kind of measures in place. And it's not that we have true herd immunity here, because true herd immunity is going to probably be between 60 to 90 percent. And that means you don't have to walk around with masks or anything just because there's so many people who have had it and are now immune to it that the virus can't find a way to spread. So it just dies out naturally. So this has to be true somewhat on some level, because we know this virus has to have spread We saw how many cases it took for us to get up to near 60,000 hospitalizations outside the New York area. And so if it took that many people being infected to create that many hospitalizations, then it suggests that there was a much higher positivity rate in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, and also in Washington and California that would give us naturally more cases that probably puts us at least double of where we were, you would think. So There is probably a little bit of a herd humanity factor playing in here along with our social distancing measures. Because when you look at also the r naught number, which determines the spreadability of the virus, it is still below 1. So if you have an r naught of 1, that means for every 1 infection, you also get another person getting infected from that 1 person. So it's 1 to 1 person. If it's above 1, that means you have 1 infected person potentially infecting more than 1 person, which is bad. That means it is a highly infectious disease. But if it's below 1, it means that not all people who are getting it are spreading it, and that is somewhat more widespread. So our R-naught number right now is below one, and it's dropped down to 0.94. So before, I think it was around 9.6 or 9.8. So it's dropped down a little bit here, so that means it is losing its steam, which is good, and it's holding there. So that means the virus is finding it much harder to spread right now than it was earlier in the summer. So that is good news on that front. And I mentioned we've come back to the testing thing. So remember, we've we've run 77 million tests. We're doing 700 to 750,000 a day. We'd like to do more, but we're kind of constrained now by how long it takes for these test results to come back and as well as our testing facilities. And last week, I blasted Biden's COVID-19 plan as just basically out of date and plagiarizing Donald Trump's plan because he said we needed much faster tests, Much faster than what we were already doing, and we need to rapid test, and we need to deploy them everywhere. Well, again, he's behind on the times, because we have already done a version of that, and now we're doing it again. The first fast test meant you got results in under three days. Well, now Donald Trump has now just given $750 million to purchase the latest and fastest test built to date from Abbott Labs. From a Reuters news story on this, it says that the portable antigen tests, which can deliver results within 15 minutes and will sell for $5, received emergency use authorization from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration on Wednesday. The portable test from Abbott is about the size of a credit card, requires no additional equipment to operate, and can be conducted using less invasive nasal swab than traditional lab tests. Now, because of that, there's also going to be a higher accuracy problem here because you're using a nasal swab instead of the more traditional version. So there's going to be an issue with the accuracy on that, but this is to be expected, and it's still going to swamp the market with tests. Because when you drop $750 million on it on a $5 million test, according to the news report, that meant we're getting a grand total of $150 million of tests these tests. That is enough to test nearly half the U.S. population. So we are going to be swamped with tests before the election hits, because those are those are supposed to hit the market by October. So if you can test nearly half the country by then, and they, people can pick them up for five bucks, that's just a phenomenal thing that's happened. That is huge news. So if a fall second wave does come we will have much faster early detection networks set up to catch it. And by October or November, we'll know for sure how the virus is progressing, if it is at all. Hopefully it's not at all. We're still, you know, we're still poking along with a below, with an r naught a below one. But it's worth noting that Europe is entering a second wave as we speak. Most of their countries have all trended upwards, France, Spain, and some others. They've all seen their case counts spike up, and they're likely to see hospitalizations go with that. And so what that's meant is that, you know, they're looking at what they have to do now. So, you know, you've had all kinds of people on the left here lecturing us that we needed to be more like Europe. We needed to be like these countries, and now these countries are the ones going through the second wave. And while we're on a very good downward trajectory, so... All that to say, don't get cocky about your country or your region's progress because this virus has defeated every known government and society known to man. We don't really know how to predict what's going to happen next with this virus, and we're not going to do what New Zealand is doing, whereas if we get one case, we shut the entire country down and send everybody home and shut everything down. That is something that we just cannot afford to do. So just stay humble, stay wise, because we could very well hit a second wave. But right now, we're building the tools to deal with it. Right now, we're on a better path. Europe's on a bad one. But even in Europe, the virus is spreading among younger populations. The deaths and hospitalizations aren't impacting quite as hard this time. So that is a silver lining here, that this is staying away from the older populations that it wiped through in the first round in the spring. So that's the silver lining to all of that that's the good news with all of that. I think this is a lot of really good news. All the numbers are trending in the right direction. We have an increasing number of tools to deal with it. We have an increasing number of therapies to deal with it. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens with this uh, blood plasma type treatment that they're working on. It looked like it may have some potential benefits, but it obviously needs to be studied more, and they're just basically loosing all these potential things and letting them hit the market and letting doctors and patients see what happens. So we're just, we've are just we got more tools now. We're adding more tools, seemingly now, every week, and that is a good thing. going to take one more quick break here, and we'll come back. We'll hit the light item for this week and get you guys out. So I mentioned in the newsletter that the conclusion to the Republican Convention was probably the best part. Between the fireworks and the music, it was just all just phenomenal. It was about a 15-minute show that they put on there at the end. Now, obviously, this is a podcast, I can't show you the fireworks, but I thought I would share you with you my favorite part after the fireworks, and that was the musical abilities of the opera singer, Christopher Macchio he did a series of songs, but he started out with two melodies, and he opened up with the opera song Nessun Dorma, and then Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Both, he sang both of these in front of the White House, so you had the president give his speech, and then behind him you had the White House as the backdrop, and so they had Christopher on the balcony there with his accompaniment, and the musicians, and he was looking out over the front lawn with the moshin monument it was just a beautiful setting and then he was just belting out gorgeous tunes in fact it was hilarious if you flipped around to some of the other cable news channels that were there like fox news you couldn't really hear them speaking sometimes because they had him playing over the back and really they should have just flipped over because he was so much better than whatever they were talking about so here he is christopher macchio singing starting off with nessun dorma and then he finishes off with hallelujah That is just the most beautiful rendition of either of those songs. Real, well, maybe not the first one. Pavarotti had the best version of Nessun Dorma, but that's the best version of Hallelujah I've ever heard, by far. So I hope you enjoyed that. Because that's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look smart for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked it and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.